The goal of Christian apologetics is to make a reasoned case for Christian theism, to show that there's good reason to think that Christianity is true. But what is truth? There are some who maintain that any effort that seeks to come to a knowledge of the truth is misguided from the start, because there's no such thing as truth with a capital T. Rather, there's only truths with a lowercase t. And if you listen to the way people talk in our culture today, especially on college campuses, you might get the idea that truth is something up for grabs, or something up for interpretation, something that can be bended and molded at will, something that can be customized or personalized to fit the preferences of the individual or group. It's not uncommon to hear somebody refer to my truth, or to hear someone encourage you to speak your truth, as if truth were a private possession. The same idea is being expressed when people say things like, true for you, but not true for me. Now, these kinds of statements reflect a view about the nature of truth that goes by the name relativism. In simplest terms, relativism is the view that truth itself is relative to the point of view of the judging subject. There's no truth that's independent of what the individual or group happens to think. Relative, uh, relativism can come in one of two forms, depending on who it is that has the final word when it comes to determining what is true. Cultural relativism says that what is true is determined by the beliefs of a society or a group. And individual relativism says that what is true is determined by the beliefs of the individual. And another way to understand relativism is to see it as a denial of the existence of absolute truth. Something is an absolute truth when it is true, independent of what any individual or group happens to think or feel about it. Now, relative truth is subjective. It's true only from the point of view of some person or group of people. And what's true is true for me or for my group. Whereas absolute truth is objective. It's true for everyone, everywhere, and at every time. And what's true is true for all. Now, if truth is relative, then what is real and true is determined. But if truth is absolute, then what is real and true is discovered. So the positive statement of relativism is that claims are true or false relative to the subjective beliefs of the individual or group. The negative statement of relativism is that there are no absolute objective truths. Again, according to relativism, there is what is true for me, what is true for you, what is true for this culture, what is true for that culture. But there is nothing that is true full stop. Nothing that is true absolutely and apart from what individuals or cultures happen to think or believe. This relativistic understanding of truth has taken root in Western culture thanks to the widespread influence of postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is an ideology that's difficult to characterize and define. And for this reason, it often gets mischaracterized. It's not really a unified movement at all, um, but rather consists in a loose coalition of diverse thinkers from various academic disciplines. The postmodernists reacted against the Enlightenment sensibilities that characterize the modern way of thinking. The modern mentality is marked by such things as a confidence in the universal use of rationality and logic, a belief in the transparency of language and the stability of meaning, and the assumption of an unmediated reality and the existence of objective truth. And against this, the postmodernists claim that rationality and logic are conditional and without universal validity, 
that language is a social construct with no fixed meaning, and that reality is a mental construct and truth is relative to individuals or groups. And according to postmodern thinking, claims to objective knowledge or absolute truth are really just a disguise for power, privilege, or authority. We can see the manifestation of this thought today in the ideology of critical theory, which considers the notion of objective or absolute truth to be a means or a tool for the oppressor group to maintain power over the oppressed groups. Postmodern thought in its denial of absolute truth has enjoyed widespread influence in the American university, especially in the humanities departments and the wider popular culture. It so saturated the culture of late 20th century America that philosopher Ellen Bloom could open his 1987 classical work, The Closing of the American Mind, by writing, quote, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative, end quote. So thanks to postmodernism and the relativism that has come from it, there exists today mass confusion about the nature of truth. And this is especially true in our nation's college campuses. So how do we sort this out? Who's right? Is truth subjective and relative, or is it objective and absolute? What is truth? Luckily, when it comes to defining truth, we don't need to consider some dense, sophisticated philosophical theory. The nature of truth is actually quite obvious to all of us. We all know what truth is. We all share that pre-theoretical, common-sense awareness that truth is simply conformity to fact. Truth is just telling it like it is. Aristotle captured this common-sense definition of truth long ago when he wrote, quote, To say of what is that it is not, or of what is not that it is, is false. While to say of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not, is true. End quote. Now, the modern technical term for this ancient common sense view is the correspondence theory of truth, which states that proposition or statement is true just in case it corresponds to reality. That is to say, a statement is true when what it asserts to be the case is, in fact, the case. And again, this understanding of the nature of truth captures our pre-theoretical knowledge, which is why, with very little exception, the correspondence theory of truth has been held by virtually everyone prior to the 19th century and the rise of postmodernism. It also happens to be the understanding of truth that is presupposed by scripture. Now, to go a little bit deeper philosophically, we can say that truth is a quality of the intellect or a formal unity of the mind and reality. Aquinas gives us this deeper philosophical definition of truth when he writes, quote, Truth is defined as a conformity between the intellect and the thing, end quote. Truth takes place in the intellect when thought is in conformity to the way things really are. Now, given the nature of truth, we can see that truth must be objective and absolute. Again, thought has the quality of truth if and only if it conforms to the thing in the world, a proposition or statement is true if and only if it matches reality. We have as little control or say over what is true as we have control or say over what is real. Truth is as objective as reality itself. Just as what is real is real for all people 
in all places and at all times. So what is true is true for all people in all places and at all times. Man is not the measure of what is true. Reality is. Truth is not dependent on feelings or preferences. Something is true or false regardless of whether we like it or not. And it is often rightly said that truth doesn't care about your feelings. We cannot invent or determine what is true. And we cannot make something that is actually false true for me. Now, it's important to see that even facts about the subjective preferences of individuals are objectively true. For example, that Winston's favorite food is ice cream is a subjective fact about Winston. However, the proposition, Winston's favorite food is ice cream, is an objective truth. It corresponds to reality, and it's therefore true for everyone, not just for Winston. So despite the claims made by postmodernists, we all know what truth is, and we all know that truth is objective and absolute. But is there anything else that we can say in response to relativism? Yeah, I think there is. We can say this. We know that relativism must be false because it's self-defeating. Now, what does this mean? Well, a self-defeating statement is one that includes itself in its own field of reference and therefore defeats its own claim. Self-defeating statements are self-referentially incoherent. To see this, consider the following statement as an example. All English sentences are false. Now, can you see the problem with this statement? Well, the statement itself is an English sentence, and therefore, it's self-defeating. Self-defeating claims self-destruct because they undercut themselves. A person who makes a self-defeating claim is like the guy who saws off the branch that he's sitting on. Self-defeating statements refute themselves because they fail to meet their own standard or criteria of validity. There is literally no possible way for a self-defeating statement to be true. It must be false. To sniff out a self-defeating statement, start by asking yourself what claim is being made by the statement, and then simply apply the claim to the statement itself. Consider this sentence. You can't know anything for sure. What's the claim here? Well, the claim is that certain knowledge is impossible. But when we apply the claim to itself and we ask, are you sure about that? We can see that the statement clearly refutes itself because it's basically saying that you surely can't know anything for sure. And that, of course, is self-refuting. Claims that are obviously self-defeating, like this one, are easy to spot. Other claims are only implicitly self-defeating and are more difficult to see. The trick here will be to make explicit the self-defeating claim that is implied by the statement. Now, to see an example of this, consider a famous claim made by the late world-renowned theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. In his 2010 book, The Grand Design, he makes this bold statement. He says, philosophy is dead. Hawking goes on to argue that science has made philosophy obsolete. However, as many have pointed out, the claim that philosophy is dead is itself a philosophical claim, not a scientific one. In fact, much of the reasoning that Hawking engages in throughout the book in support of the claim that philosophy is obsolete is clearly philosophical in nature. And in fact, Hawking engages in philosophical reasoning in order to demonstrate that philosophy is dead. But this is, of course, 
self-defeating. People, even highly intelligent people like the late Hawking, make claims that are implicitly self-defeating all the time. Developing a nose for self-refuting claims will help you sniff them out whenever they're made. So how is relativism self-defeating? Well, luckily for us, the claim made by the relativist is explicitly self-refuting and easy to see. So let's take the negative claim of relativism first. That claim, if you remember, is this. There is no absolute truth. Now suppose we turn this claim on itself and we ask, is the claim that there's no absolute truth absolutely true? If the answer to this question is yes, the claim is absolutely true, then the claim itself is false, since there is at least one absolute truth after all, namely this one. So if the claim is true, then it's false. And of course, if it's false, it's false. Either way, it's false. So the claim that there is no absolute truth cannot possibly be true because it's self-referentially incoherent. It refutes itself. Now, how about the positive claim of relativism? Does it do any better? Again, that claim is that all truth is relative. Again, let's apply this claim to itself and ask, is the claim that all truth is relative itself relatively true? Now, if the answer to this question is yes, then we have a problem. If the claim that all truth is relative is itself only a relative truth, then it can't possibly be a statement about all truth. Because to say that all truth is relative is just to say that it's absolutely true that all truth is relative. And this, of course, is a contradiction. It's self-defeating. So again, if the claim is true, well, then it's false. And if the claim is false, of course, it's false. It is self-referentially incoherent. It refutes itself. It's therefore literally impossible to coherently deny the existence of absolute truth or to coherently affirm that all truth is relative. Every attempt to do so is going to be self-defeating. And because relativism cannot be coherently asserted or defended, it is a false theory of truth. So why then does anybody believe this? Why are there any relativists? Why would anyone subscribe to such an explicitly incoherent theory of truth? And why is it so prevalent on our college campuses? Well, it seems to me that there are two primary motivations for the cultural embrace of relativism. The first reason has to do with the popular belief that absolute truth leads to intolerance. Tolerance is a word that gets tossed around a lot today. But what does it mean? Well, according to the contemporary cultural definition of the term, tolerance means acceptance. And to tolerate the beliefs of others is to accept those beliefs as valid and true for them. Now, it follows from this definition that to challenge another person's truth is to be intolerant toward them. And there are few things that are more odious in our society than to be labeled as an intolerant person. Tolerance has become one of the chief virtues of our secular society, and intolerance one of the gravest vices. We're told then that if we're going to have a tolerant and peaceful society, we're going to have to accept each other's truth claims as equally valid. Now this, of course, implies that truth itself must be relative to the individual or to the group. There are, however, severe problems with this relativistic understanding of tolerance. First, notice the claim that you ought to be tolerant is self-defeating for the relativist because it's stating a moral absolute. 
The claim is not that tolerance is merely true for me, but that it's true for everyone. But since relativism is just the claim that there are no absolutes, this claim self-destructs. Second, and ironically, this view of tolerance seems to justify intolerance. Now this follows logically, as the following syllogism makes clear. Premise 1. We should accept all beliefs as equally valid for the ones who hold them. Now notice that this is just the relativistic definition of tolerance. Premise 2. Some beliefs are intolerant beliefs. But then the conclusion follows necessarily. Therefore, we should accept intolerant beliefs as equally valid for the ones who hold them. It seems that tolerance demands that we tolerate intolerance. But now it seems we have no grounds to criticize and condemn views that are highly intolerant and dangerous. What ground is there, for example, to condemn the Nazi belief that the Jews were subhuman and a threat to society? After all, according to the relativistic understanding of tolerance, this belief was valid for the Nazis. It was true for them. Now, many are quick to modify the doctrine of tolerance here by adding the qualification that we should accept the beliefs of others as valid and true for them, as long as those beliefs do no harm to others. But there are two problems with this. First, it's ad hoc. It just seems like an arbitrary add-on to the definition of tolerance that's intended to screen off views that you don't like. After all, given the contemporary definition of tolerance, why shouldn't we accept intolerant views as equally valid and true? Moreover, the statement is again self-defeating for the relativist because it's asserting another moral absolute, namely, we ought not harm others. Now finally, the use of this word tolerance is just utterly confusing. What sense does it make to say that we ought to tolerate beliefs and truths that we accept? Why would I have to tolerate something I agree with? We don't tolerate views that we agree with. We tolerate views that we disagree with. We tolerate things that we find annoying, irritating, and wrong. We embrace things that we find true, good, and right. This last point about the inappropriate use of the word tolerance hints at the underlying source of the confusion here. The classical meaning of the word tolerance has been subtly changed in recent times to mean something that it has never meant. Although today the word tolerance is often applied to beliefs, accepting all beliefs as equally valid, the word in its original meaning is appropriately applied to people, not beliefs. We don't tolerate beliefs that we think are wrong by accepting them. We tolerate people by respecting them when they hold beliefs that we think are wrong. Tolerance does not require that we accept the validity of all beliefs. Tolerance requires that we respect the dignity of all persons, even if we disagree with their beliefs. Again, this comports with the natural sense of the word. You don't have to tolerate people that you agree with. You only have to tolerate people that you disagree with. It's always foolish and wrong to accept beliefs as true that you think are false. And it's always wise and right to respect the people who hold beliefs that you think are false. This is the true meaning of tolerance that's required for an open and peaceful society. We don't all have to agree, but we all have to respect each other. Of course, the Christian is called to a higher virtue and a more demanding law than that of mere tolerance. As Christians, we're not just commanded to tolerate people with whom we disagree, but rather to love them.
We live not merely by the civic law of tolerance, but by the divine law of love. When asked for his greatest and most important commandment, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's this same Jesus who elsewhere commands, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, to love someone is to will his or her good. But false ideas and beliefs are bad for the person who holds them. And the more important and critical the subject, the more deadly the error. So the most loving thing Christians can do when they encounter their neighbors believing things that are false and dangerous is to tell them the truth. Notice here the radical difference between the current cultural virtue of tolerance and the Christian virtue of love. According to many in our culture today, it is wrong and bad to tell other people that their beliefs are false. To tolerate people is to accept their truth. But according to Christ, it is right and good to tell other people that their beliefs are false. To love people is to tell them the truth. The second reason for the cultural embrace of relativism is related to the first and has to do with the widespread belief that absolute truth leads to religious dogmatism. We're often told today that if you believe that your religion is the one true religion, then you are, in effect, imposing your religious beliefs onto others. If you claim to follow the truth in religious matters, you're being exclusive rather than inclusive. And if you say that other religions are wrong, well, then you're being a bigot and closed-minded. The rejection of absolute truth in matters of religion and morality has given rise to an ideology known as religious pluralism, which maintains that there are many paths or ways to God, and that no one religion has exclusive claim to be the true religion. Religious pluralism is often expressed by the popular coexist bumper sticker. The message here is that all religions basically teach the same truth, and so can exist alongside one another in harmony. The problem with religious pluralism, however, is that in order for it to be true, virtually every other major world religion has to be false. To see this, consider first that virtually every major religion claims to be the one true religion. And second, the fundamental teachings of the various world religions contradict each other. Although many religions share a broadly similar moral code, the world's major religions differ widely in their central and critical claims, including those related to the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the universe, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and so on. And when you study the various religions on offer, what you actually find is superficial agreement with essential difference. So despite what you often hear today, all religions do not teach essentially the same thing. They don't coexist, they contradict. Despite the claim to the contrary, the ideology of religious pluralism turns out to be just as religiously dogmatic as any traditional religion is. Religious pluralism imposes its own beliefs over and against all those of other beliefs because it claims to be the truth concerning religion. And it's not inclusive of the central beliefs of other religions, but excludes them as false. And it's every bit as bigoted and close-minding to opposing beliefs as other religions are, 
because it claims that other religions are wrong and only religious pluralism is right. In fact, we really can't avoid being dogmatic and exclusive when it comes to truth claims of any kind, religious or otherwise. And this is because all truth claims are exclusive and restrictive insofar as all truth claims exclude their opposites. This is simply a matter of logic. The most fundamental principle of logic is the law of non-contradiction, which states that something cannot be or be true and not be or be false at the same time and in the same sense. Another fundamental logical principle is the law of excluded middle, which states that something either is or is true or is not or is false. So nobody can avoid being narrow and exclusive when it comes to what they believe. Even views that explicitly claim to be inclusive are exclusive insofar as they exclude their contradictories. Those who claim to be tolerant or to accept all beliefs do not tolerate beliefs that they find to be intolerant. And those who claim that all religions are true must reject as untrue any religion that claims to be the truth. And those who claim that truth is relative must absolutely reject the claim that truth is absolute. Perhaps at this point you may be wondering whether the real problem here is with logic itself. As we've seen, logically speaking, relativism is self-referentially incoherent and self-contradictory. But are we not begging the question, since we're assuming that logic itself represents the absolute and objective truth? Why can't we just say that logic itself is relative? Perhaps the critical theorists are correct when they tell us that logic is merely the construct of the white heteronormative patriarchy. But this is just deeply confused. Regardless of what you sometimes hear today, the basic laws of logic are no more culturally relative than is reality itself. Indeed, this follows necessarily, since logic just is a description of the laws of all being and of all thought. In fact, the basic laws of logic are actually undeniable. That is to say, you cannot deny the laws of logic without at the same time affirming them. Logic is not some social construction, but rather describes the very preconditions for the possibility of meaning itself. Logic is necessary to coherently formulate any idea whatsoever. In fact, apart from logic, none of your thoughts, none of your beliefs, none of your statements, not even your knowledge would be coherent. Okay, so I think we've said enough here to conclude that relativism is deeply confused and hopelessly incoherent. We all know what truth is. We all know that truth is objective and absolute. And every attempt to deny this fact turns out to be self-defeating. Although there are many today who still claim that truth is relative, I'm not convinced that there's a single person on this planet who actually believes this. Now, how do I know this? Well, because relativism is unlivable. And even those who espouse it betray their true beliefs in their everyday interaction with reality. We demand the absolute truth in almost every area of our lives. We demand it from our loved ones, our friends, our doctors, our stockbrokers, our employers, our teachers, and on and on. True for you, but not for me, may be the mantra of the day, but nobody actually lives by it. When the doctor tells you that your blood sugar is high, you don't tell him that that may be true for him, but it's not true for you, so you're not worried about it. When your banker tells you that you've overdrawn your account, you don't insist that it's only overdrawn for your banker, but it's not overdrawn for you. 
And when the policeman pulls you over for speeding, you don't inform him that it may have been true for him that you were speeding, but it wasn't true for you. Even the avowed relativist looks both ways when he crosses the street because he knows that there is an objective fact of the matter as to whether a car is bearing down on him. Even the relativist reaches for the bottle that says Tylenol, rather for the one that says rat poison when he has a headache, because he knows that there is an objective difference between the two. Nobody can consistently live as a relativist, not at least for very long. Reality has a way of asserting itself. Now, as we've already seen, many people who say that truth is relative today apply their relativism inconsistently. They only apply it to certain types of truth claims, namely those that are moral or religious in nature. In other words, many in our culture today adhere to a kind of selective relativism. They are more or less willing to accept the existence of absolute truth when it comes to nearly every aspect of their life. And they only deny that absolute truth exists when it comes to matters of religion and morality. Even our universities today exist in this bizarre state of schizophrenia when it comes to truth. Take a class in the humanities, and you'll be told that truth is relative to the individual or to the culture. Take a class in the sciences, and you'll be told that what you're learning is the objective truth concerning the nature of the physical world. What's being communicated to us loudly and clearly in both the halls of academia and by the collective voice of popular culture is this. Truth is available, but it's only available from one source. Science. This is a claim that we'll take up next time on Think for Christ.